0: When there are serious risks, there are serious warnings. You'd think we wouldn't need a warning. You'd think common sense would help people steer clear of risky things, but it seems we're not as good at assessing risk as you'd hope. It's why at this time of year there are graphic ads on TV warning us of the dangers of driving distracted, speeding or being over the limit. It's why there are graphic images on cigarette packets. And when you see the warnings and you think the danger is real, you take notice. But if you don't think they're real, if you think cancer or emphysema are conspiracies, or if you think that your driving skills are superior than the so-called laws of physics, you'll ignore the warnings. In the Bible, God gives some serious warnings. Serious warnings about judgement, about punishment. And I reckon these warnings are worth listening to. They're worth your attention even if you're not sure they're valid. They're worth it because it doesn't cost you much to listen and consider. And if the warning's real, you'll be glad you listened. And what's more, unlike cigarette and road safety warnings, God's warnings come with a promise. You can listen to every road safety warning and be as careful as possible on the road and you can still get into an accident. But God's warnings come with a sure and certain promise which makes them even more worth listening to. All through Malachi, we've been hearing bad news. God has brought accusations against his people. Their response has been pathetic, sneering, talking back, rolling their eyes in contempt. But at the end of Malachi's message, there's hope. Some listened. A small group of people took God's message to heart. So have a listen to verse 16. So this is Malachi 3, 16. Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other, and the Lord listened and heard. A scroll of remembrance was written in his presence, Concerning those who feared the Lord and honoured his name. After hearing all of God's accusations through Malachi, a small group, a remnant, listened and returned unto God. They take God's word seriously. Remnant means the remaining bit. If you're a sower, the remnants are the scraps of material left over that you might then make into a quilt. Uh, this, This small faithful group are a remnant, a small group who took God's warning to heart. And they wrote a book of remembrance. My guess is it's a book where they reminded themselves of God's word and then they signed their names to it. They committed to each other and to God. Now, this is a bit of an aside. Some people think they can do Christianity on their own. They think somehow they, or maybe they and their family, will have the resources to stand firm and live for God despite the pressures of the world and their own sin. Now, maybe they'll be the exception that proves the rule, but the example of this faithful group is an illustration of a truth. God saves people. God gives people Salvation. He gives us one another. He's given us church to be his faithful people. We need one another. We need church where there is a commitment to one another, commitment to gather and spur each other on to love and good deeds, commitment to remind each other of God's word and encourage each other to fear God. They knew it in Malachi's day that they couldn't do this by themselves. Brothers and sisters, I need you. I can't go the distance without you. We need each other. And church, we need to step into this truth in being this kind of people for one another. As we welcome people in, and particularly as people become formal members, if you like, they write their name in that book of remembrance, we need to to live up to the example we see in Malachi to keep encouraging each other to press on with Jesus. And we need this encouragement because, let's go back to Malachi, because a day of distinction is coming. Verse 17, On the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty, they will be my treasured possession. I will spare them just as a father has compassion and spares his son who serves him. And you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. The reason this group wrote their name in the book is to say, we are God's treasured possession, and we're going to encourage each other to stand firm until that day, because the coming day will be a time of distinction. On this day of distinction, think back to early in, earlier in Malachi, no one's going to say on this day, how have you loved us to God? Because the difference between those God loves and those he hates, to use the stark language of Malachi, is going to be clear. No one's going to say those who do evil are good in God's eyes because it's going to be obvious God is not pleased with them. No one's going to say evil doers prosper, they test God and get away with it because on that day there'll be no escape. It'll be a day of distinction. Distinction between those who serve God and those who don't. And as we go into chapter four, we get an even more graphic picture of this day. It'll be a day of God's fiery judgment. Verse one, Malachi four, one. Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. And that the day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them. What do you think of this warning? Uh, Do you think the day of God's judgment is real? I reckon most people today wouldn't take this warning very seriously. Uh, Many people would think this is an attempt to scare people, to use fear to control them. And fear does control people, doesn't it? They might think it's like the ads about what happens when they speed, but plenty of people think, oh, I'm a good driver, that's never going to happen to me. Lots of people think what the Bible says about God's judgment, it's, it's never going to happen, it's just a scare tactic to control people. And there's nothing new to this. I'm jumping the gun a bit, but in 2 Peter we hear about scoffers who say, where is this coming, he promised. Since forever, plenty of thought God's judgment is a joke. But in Malachi's day, unless they've got the shortest memory, they'd know God is serious. They'd just experienced 70 years of exile. Their homeland had been destroyed by the Babylonians and they'd lived as refugees or prisoners of war for 70 years. In the story of the Bible, Babylon's invasion is just a trailer for the coming judgment. And there'd been plenty of trailers shown already. Think of the time of the judges. Israel routinely oppressed by powerful armies because of their sin. But this day Malachi is speaking about sounds final. It sounds like the real thing. Not a trailer, not a preview. The real deal, everything burnt. Root, branches and all. Now, mentioning the Babylonian exile probably doesn't raise your blood pressure. Look, it might be God's judgment or it could just be the ups and downs of history. For us, we don't look to the exile as our picture of God's judgment. We look to the cross. If you're wondering whether the warning is real, the question is, what do you make of the cross? If the crucifixion of Jesus is just another bloke, corrupt power crushing the little guy... Maybe Malachi is just talk. But if the cross is what the Bible says it is, if the cross is where Jesus died in our place, taking into himself the punishment our sin deserves, then we need to listen to Malachi's warning. Because the coming day will be a day of distinction. For some, it'll be a day of fire. For others, it's a day of joy. Verse 2, but for you who revere my name, The sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its rays. And you will go out and frolic like well-fed calves. Then you will trample on the wicked. They will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty. I love this picture. Frolicking calves, the, the dawn of righteousness. Uh, one of the joys of where the manse is is looking out over the Gimpy State High Farm, watching the calves. They're drought masters. They're not bison like the photo. They just love the way they dance and frolic around the paddock, in such a contrast to the calm cows. The frolicking calves you watch them, you just can't help but share and feel their joy. God says for those who revere, who fear his name, for those who turn to him, the coming day is going to be like that. The the stable gates are open and you can run out into the paddock and dance at last. It'll be a day when the sun of righteousness will dawn. Now this picture of the sun rising... Just as the physical sun rises and shines light and warmth over the earth, on this day, righteousness will shine over the planet. And the the dawn of this day brings healing. Instead of pain, brokenness, evil and corruption covering the world, instead of the things we too often see on our screens, righteousness and restoration will be universal. Though there's darkness underfoot, on the field where the calves frolic are the ashes of God's judgment. There's an echo here of the promise of Genesis 3, that Eve's offspring will crush the serpent's head underfoot. But we do need to listen carefully. There's nothing here to inspire violence in God's people. Uh, This week was the anniversary of the horrific murder of the police officers in Wyambala. A few days ago, they arrested a bloke who'd inspired the murders. Allegedly, the murderers and their teacher had twisted the Bible that somehow killing police was God's work. But you don't even have to be that good a reader of Malachi to realise who is it that acts, who acts in judgement, Verse three: "On the day I act, the Lord will judge, not people. God will bring justice, and even better, rescue those who are his, that are His. Yes, the judgment is real, but it is not for us. It is for God. Malachi's message is that the day is coming. It's a serious warning with an amazing promise. So how are people to respond? How are we to be ready for that day? Well, Malachi gives two instructions, remember and turn, remember and repent. So verse 4, remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents of their children and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. Uh, first instruction to Israel, remember the law God gave through Moses. Uh, remember doesn't mean study for an exam. Remember means put into practice. And we've heard throughout Malachi how God's people weren't remembering. Uh, the second instruction is to turn. And to do this, they need to be on the watch for Elijah. Now, who's Elijah? Elijah was a prophet 500 years before Malachi. You can read about him in 1 and 2 Kings. Elijah was around during a low point in Israel's history. The nation had been split in two for hundreds of years. In Elijah's day, Ahab was king over Israel, the northern kingdom, and Jezebel was his queen. Ahab and Jezebel led the northern kingdom into deep idolatry. Faithful Israelites were killed or driven out. And God raised up Elijah to call Israel back to the true and living God. So why does Malachi say, Elijah will come again? One thing he's saying is nothing's changed. As a whole, God's people haven't learned from exile. Things are just as bad as Ahab's day. But also the reason Elijah would be sent is because Elijah's story ends in a strange way. He doesn't die, but he's taken into the heavens by a powerful wind. So he's a fitting option to be sent to prepare people for the coming day. And he comes to call people back to God. The thing about turning the hearts of parents to children and back and forth, I think it's a turn of phrase. It's not about family relationships. It's about all of God's people, all generations, being called to turn back to God. And if they don't, Malachi finishes with a final warning. Total destruction. Uh, destruction is the last word in Malachi. In our English Bibles it's the last word in the Old Testament. In the Hebrew Bible it's the last word in the prophetic writings. Either way it leaves a serious note ringing in our ears. And for hundreds of years God's people waited and wondered. When would Elijah come? When will the son of righteousness rise? And then one day a baby was born to an unlikely couple, unable to have children, and then a son in their old age. And when their son named John was born, his dad sang, And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. Anything sound familiar? I probably could have highlighted a few other turns of phrase, couldn't I? Years later, John began calling Israel to turn to God. The religious leaders asked him, are you Elijah? And his answer was, no. Which is strange because of everything he was doing. He was calling people to repent. He would later rebuke King Herod, not unlike Elijah and King Ahab. So who is he? Later, Jesus raised the same question. Who is John the Baptist? And This is what he said. It's in Matthew 11. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet – this is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Sound familiar? That's Malachi 3.1. Let's keep going. Truly I tell you, among those born of women, there is not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence and violent people have been raiding it. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. Whoever has ears, let them hear. John is Elijah, not a reincarnation, not Elijah restored from the heavens, but a reenactment. John is filling Elijah's shoes. A little while later, after Jesus is transfigured, revealing something of his glory, and Moses and Elijah appear there before him and with him, as Peter, James and John are coming down the hill... They ask Jesus about Elijah. Now, this would be the perfect moment for them to say, or for Jesus to say, hey, Malachi 4 just happened, that was it, on the mountain, Elijah, shining in the clouds. But that's not what he says. Have a listen to Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. The disciples asked him, Why then do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? They mustn't have known Malachi all that well. (laughs) Jesus replied, To be sure, Elijah comes and will restore all things, but I tell you, Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but have done to him everything they wished. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then, the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. Elijah has come, but most of God's people missed it. Even the followers of Jesus only understood it after Jesus told them. Only then did they realise John is the promised Elijah. Not re-embodied, but Elijah re-enacted. And I think this might explain why John said, He isn't Elijah. Maybe like the disciples, John didn't realize he fulfilled Malachi 4. He knew about Malachi 3, but not Malachi 4. But he did. In John the Baptist, Elijah has come. He called God's people to repentance, turning their hearts to God. But if Elijah has come and gone, shouldn't this mean all God's enemies are now ashes on the ground? Shouldn't this mean all God's people frolic like calves? If Elijah has come, where is the day of God's coming? As Jesus dies on the cross, the day comes. As Peter, one of the disciples who saw Jesus transfigured, one who realised John to be the promised Elijah, as Peter later wrote, Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. On the cross, the day of God's judgement and joy come together. Jesus bears the sin of his people, taking the fiery judgement we deserve. And he takes it into himself and he does it so the sun of righteousness might rise with healing in its rays. He bears our sin so we might be forgiven and live to righteousness. Because this is the dilemma of Malachi 3 and 4. Who can survive the day of God's coming? Who can find it a day of joy? Malachi calls us to fear God, to fearfully love him with all our heart and soul and mind and strength. And who has done that? Malachi calls us to remember Moses, to fully keep every commandment. Who is able? Malachi calls calls us to serve God faithfully, or else God's fiery judgment comes with total destruction. But he also holds out the promise that for those who turn to God, the coming day is going to be one of joy. Only in Jesus are these two truths possible. In Jesus, the day of God's judgment comes as he bears sin so those who trust in him can receive salvation. And we see this because on the third day, the sun dawns with resurrection hope. But still, if, if Elijah has come and if the day is now, why are God's enemies not ashes? It's because in God's kindness, that day is still going. It's Now, remember the scoffers? When's the day going to come? This is how Peter answers the question. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years. And a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, But everyone to come to repentance. The day of God's coming isn't 24 hours, but it's been going for 2,000 years. And the reason for the extension is God's gracious patience. But the patience will end. Jesus will return in fiery judgment. That's the warning. It's a serious warning. The reason for the warning is the risk is real. The day of God's patience will not last forever. Judgment is coming. The death, resurrection and ascension of Jesus shows it's true. Will you listen to the warning? Will you turn to God and shelter in Jesus? Let's pray. Father God, we praise you because you have and will act to bring judgment and salvation. We know that without Jesus, we would have no hope of facing that day when you act. We praise you for Jesus, that he has bore the punishment for sin on the cross, that all who turn and trust in him might be forgiven, restored and brought into the people of the light. Help us take your judgment seriously and help us live with joy, knowing the certainty of salvation, not because of anything in us, but because of your mercy in Christ. Amen. Amen.